Hello and welcome back to the Indie the Podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm Molly McEnany, the host of The Indie, and for this week's ANL cover story, I'm here with Charles Donnellan, Executive Arts Editor at The Independent, to discuss the new year of arts and lectures at UCSB, as well as Opera Santa Barbara opening their Mariachi Opera at the Granada Theater this weekend, October 1st through 3rd. Thanks, Charles, for being here. Hi, Molly. So, what are some of the performances that people can look forward to this coming fall? Oh, well, the arts and lectures slate is uh, really impressive. They're back absolutely at full strength. The opening week starts on October 10th with Julian Castro, who is going to give a talk at Campbell Hall. It's called uh, Waking Up from My American Dream, which I guess involves being the Democratic nominee for the presidency or something. But he should be really interesting. And I think he's one of those people who, if you maybe see him now, five years from now, you might be saying like, oh, yeah, I saw him when, you know, because he's definitely a rising star of the Democratic Party. So that is the very first event of the Arts and Lectures public season. They actually had a concert on campus on the first day of classes last Thursday out on Stork Plaza with La Santa Cecilia that I understand. I didn't go, but I understand it was a big hit. People really loved it. And um, you can imagine, I mean, UCSB campus is really interesting right now because they've got two, essentially, I mean, some of them are sophomores, but the sophomores didn't go to school last year. They didn't come to campus last year. So it's like two classes of freshmen. So anyway, that was fun. I saw some people on uh, Friday night. I was out there. Other things that are happening with arts and lectures that are happening soon, Wood Brothers on Tuesday, October 12th. These guys are amazing. Uh, trio, I guess you'd call it Americana if you have to put it in a category, but they're great songwriters. Um, Chris Wood, the bass player, is a very accomplished jazz musician. And Oliver Wood, the big brother with the long hair, is a fantastic singer, songwriter, guitar player. And I'd put him in the same category with like, if you like Avid Brothers, if you like Lumineers, if you like Wilco, any of that stuff, you're really going to enjoy them. And uh, it's quite meaningful, actually, for both Wood Brothers and Arts and Lectures because they played at Campbell Hall on March 6, 2020. And I believe that was the last event that was able to squeak in before the shutdown. So they're back and it's going to be emotional. We'll be the first time back in the Granada for arts and lectures. And then two more events for the first week, Danish String Quartet at the Rockwood Women's Club, which is a cool facility up in the park by the mission. And they've got some really interesting new music to play. And then on uh, Friday night, back to Campbell Hall for Arturo O'Farrell and his Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra. And you know, that'll be fun. And it will have people dancing, at least in their seats, if not in the aisles of Campbell Hall. So that's all just between now and October 15. And then as always with arts and lectures, there are literally dozens of more events throughout the year. Definitely. And I hear this December season is going to be pretty spectacular for arts and lectures as well. Oh, you bet. We've got a great, very special She and Him Christmas party. And uh, for those of you who don't know, She and Him is the musical project of Zoe Deschanel and M. Ward. 
And if you do remember the film Elf, which I kind of assume you do, Zoe Deschanel sings a lot more than just Baby It's Cold Outside. And that's what this is going to be about. And there's a very special guest involved. I can't imagine who that might be other than perhaps Santa. There's another December concert as well on the 15th. That one's on the 2nd. Uh, My Bluegrass Heart with Bella Fleck, Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas, Stuart Duncan, Edgar Meyer, and Brian Sutton. And that's going to be an amazing night of uh, bluegrass music with some of the best string musicians in the world. So both of those are December shows, very festive holiday occasions. Will be fun to be back in the Arlington. And you know what? I think people will even get dressed up for that. And another favorite show this time of year, David Sedaris is coming back, isn't he? Yes, he is. Absolutely. Some of our favorite writers are going to be back this year, including David Sedaris and also the amazing Colson Whitehead. There's an evening in February with John Leguizamo, uh, which should be fascinating. He's going to talk about his life. And um, two of Arts and Lectures' all-time biggest uh, musical supporters, Joshua Bell, February 3rd in recital, and then Wynton Marsalis, February 4th, the next night at the Granada with the whole Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. So some familiar faces, some new people, and basically the the really good news is a completely packed schedule. Yeah, and for the new year, dance is coming back, which is very exciting for arts and lectures. And with this revival of dance performances, what is currently on the schedule in Santa Barbara coming 2022. I hear there's a community-themed performance in the works. Yeah, that's right. Le Grand Continental is a project from Sylvain Emard. He is a choreographer from Montreal, and he's done this in a number of places in previous years. It is being billed as a free public dance extravaganza. And basically what that means is that approximately 100 people from the community, all ages, all types of people, all levels of dance experience, will be invited to participate and rehearse with him and learn this big, crazy line dance that they're going to do down the State Street promenade. And I'm not sure how many times or how long it's going to last. A lot of the details are still sort of to be determined. But I watched some videos of what this looks like in other communities, and it is going to be amazing. So that is the grand finale this year. So it's not just about going to see great dancers. It's actually about paying attention and brushing up on your plie and your pirouette, because you're going to have to dance at the end, or at least some people will be able to dance at the end of the season. And it just looks like a really cool, festive way to close out Well, it looks like another really amazing season for arts and lectures. So happy to have them back. I know, and it's so overwhelming and exciting to think of seeing live performances again. But kicking it off this weekend, the Santa Barbara Opera opens. So tell me a bit about this mariachi opera. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. Christis Protopatis, who is the general director and artistic director of Opera Santa Barbara, is just a really strong creative force in the community. He's been behind a lot of small kind of pop-up live music events that have been occurring. And now he's back in the Granada with this piece called uh, Cruzar la Cara de la Luna. Luna 
Crossing the Face of the Moon. It's a story of a Mexican-American family, or essentially of two halves of a family, one half Mexican and one half American, that share the same dad. And uh, it is a really interesting fusion of traditional opera and of mariachi music. And rather than having an orchestra in the pit, like you would in a standard opera setup, they've got a mariachi band and the mariachi are on stage. And since of course mariachi, they have to be able to sing too. They perform almost as a kind of Greek chorus in this story, which is about a man who leaves his wife and child in Mexico and comes to the United States and uh, various different things happen. And he ends up having another child in the uh, United States. And it's actually a happy ending, which is great about how the two parts of his life become one. The music is terrific. I listened to the original recording, which was done by the Houston Grand Opera, where this was a big success. And I think it's going to be an interesting experiment. I hope people turn out for it. It's uh, Friday, October 1st. And uh, Sunday, October 3rd at the Granada. I think this is really potentially a real glimpse of the future of uh, where contemporary opera is going towards fusions with other kinds of popular music. And one good thing to note about Arts and Lectures is that all tickets purchased give you access to a live stream in case you don't feel comfortable attending the live in theater performances. Now, Charles, I have one final question for you. What are you personally looking forward to on this lineup? Oh, that's such a great question, and I really appreciate it. I spoke with Oliver Wood, the lead singer and songwriter of Wood Brothers last week, and I just really immersed myself in their music. So I am very stoked for Tuesday night, because I think they're going to be terrific. But beyond that, I'm always so impressed by arts and lectures with the commissions that they do for classical musicians. They got two of those coming up this year. One with the uh, Danish String Quartet. So that's coming up Thursday, October 14. Danish String Quartet will actually be back in April because they just love coming here so much that they they can't stay away. But there's also another commission, something called Everything Rises, which is a collaboration between a violinist, Jennifer Coe, and a wonderful bass baritone singer, Devon Tynes. And uh, that's in April, and that should be pretty amazing. They're uh, really interesting contemporary classical musicians with a lot to say about their personal stories. Everything Rises is about what it means for them to be Korean-American and African-American, respectively. And, uh, you know, without arts and lectures commissioning these works, I think, you know, we'd, we'd be a lot poorer in the classical world. And it's an important part of what they do, not just bringing people here, but also giving them money and support and and offering them ways to advance their art. Well, it's such a wonderful arts platform for both students and residents alike, as well as people who love to visit Santa Barbara. So thank you so much, Charles, for speaking with me a bit about this year's Arts and Lectures lineup. On this past Thursday, September 23rd, the Santa Barbara County Unified School Board of Education held one of their bi-monthly meetings, this one being a special board meeting, discussing COVID response protocols. But things were not all smooth sailing after protests erupted outside of the district headquarters. I'm here with Laura Capps from the Santa Barbara Unified School Board of Education to discuss the mandate and what happened on Thursday night. Thanks for being here, Laura. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for doing the podcast. So this is big news. The Santa Barbara School Board approved a new COVID-19 vaccination mandate for all employees and staff 
for this district, how dire is this mandatory vaccination? How many staff are currently vaccinated? And after six weeks of school, how many positive COVID cases do we have? Well, not enough staff are vaccinated is the answer and too many cases. That's the short answer. But the good news is, uh, you know, we have about 1600 staff at Santa Barbara Unified. It's a big district. It's 21 schools, 13,000 kids. People don't necessarily realize that large in this community. But um, of the 1600 staff members, um, about 85% are already vaccinated, just went and did it over the summer, whenever, spring, et cetera. That's great. But then we discovered in, um, in the last few weeks of school opening that unfortunately about 160 either wouldn't tell us if they're vaccinated or actually refused to be vaccinated. And to me, if someone's not willing to share that they have or have not, that we have to assume that they haven't. And that's just was not encouraging enough to me as uh, as a parent, as a school board member, as a member of our community. And then the cases similarly are just kept rising and rising and rising. Whereas in the spring we had, you know, maybe 30 or 40 in April, we've already had um, 73, I think we're at now. I mean, every day there's almost a new one. So we've just been in school for six weeks. So it's alarming. And of the entire population, of course, those are pretty good numbers. But um, these are, by and large, a lot of unvaccinated children under 12. And that's serious nature. We don't know the long-term effects. We also don't know uh, who you know our students live with. If uh, There's a lot of multi-generational situations with elderly grandparents. Uh, I'm part of one myself. And, um, you know, it's just something we need to be as proactive about as we can. What was the process in getting this to pass? Now, there was open forum at the meeting on Thursday night, but what were some of the reactions at the meeting? Uh, They were loud and clear. Um, A lot of folks that we heard from last night are very much anti-vaccination. They're also anti-mask. They're also anti-testing. We've been hearing from from many folks who don't reside, don't necessarily have children in the district, um, just, you know, are very motivated by this single issue. And we've been hearing from them for months. By and large, the opposition um, came from those uh, not affiliated with our schools. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. So how many people actually showed up to protest this mandate then? Well, I can tell you, I mean, I was inside, so I heard that there, I heard anywhere from 30 to 70 outside. Um, they were kind of chanting. They were, they, they didn't get, it didn't get scary. Uh, we did have a police presence out there, uh, thanks to our police department. But mostly I've been just hearing from people through phone calls and emails. And that's where, you know, they'll say, oh, uh, my child isn't in your district. I homeschool, but blah, 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 blah. You know, I, I disagree with your vaccine policy. And, you know, similarly, people that are just community members, but they don't identify that they have any affiliation with the school. Again, I don't want to dim- diminish those that are part of our school system who are not happy with this. I know that people have very strong feelings about vaccines. I wish it weren't political, but it has gotten that way. Um, and now we've, we are where we are. But for me, it's not at all political. For me, it is a health mandate. It's a belief that in a time of massive crisis, as we have endured for the last 20 months with this pandemic, that we need to come together. And this isn't about individual rights. It's about our collective humanity. It's about the way that we behave with one another. There are all, there are other constrictions in life that you can't do. You can't drive drunk. You can't smoke on airplanes. You can't smoke in a classroom. (laughs) You can't show up inebriated. There are restrictions to what we can do with our bodies um, and be part of a school 
be part of an environment. And I firmly believe that if you're medically able to be vaccinated, that you need to be, if your job is caring for children, you know, if your job is to be a writer in your apartment and you don't want to get vaccinated, you know, I don't agree with that, but it's not my purview. I'm a school board member and my paramount responsibility is to keep our kids safe and our staff members. So in your personal opinion, what were some of the most poignant things said at the meeting? Oh, this one seventh grader called in um, on Zoom. Devin was his name. And he just, he kind of stopped us all in our tracks because he just spoke about how horrible it was to do Zoom school and how he doesn't want to go back there. And he wasn't, doesn't want to do that again. And we know that. Um, we know that his experience is he was not alone. And uh, too many kids suffered last year at home, uh, many tragically so. And so his he urged us past this because the more people are vaccinated, the more it means I'll have a chance of staying in school this year. And he's exactly right. And that's why we did this. And to stay in person for schooling, what has been the mandate on safety protocol in the classroom? Well, I can go through the five layers. So I've done a lot of research on this and I follow in particular the thoughts of one of the leading COVID experts, Dr. Ajish Jha from uh, the School of Public Health at Brown University. He's a public health expert and he goes through these five layers to keep schools open. And um, the first is masking, of course, and not just any mask, but a high quality mask. The original strain of this virus was cloth masks did a pretty good job, but now uh, Delta being so much more contagious, you really need the N95 or the KN94 and kids need those. So that's number one. Number two is ventilation. Classrooms have to be ventilated or auditoriums, cafeterias, et cetera. So we've tested all of our classrooms with the help of UCSB professors to make sure that there's the right amount of air circulation per hour, meaning the air is completely out six to eight times per hour, something like that, plus fans, plus air purifiers. Uh, Number three is distancing. Kids shouldn't be right next to each other. We're working on that. It's hard with the little ones. It's hard to tell a five-year-old not to sit right next to their buddy at lunch. Number four is uh, testing. So we were doing regular testing because testing is a fantastic tool to discover uh, how people are doing, especially the asymptomatic. And number five, the big kahuna of all of this is vaccine. It's by far the strongest layer of protection that we have. And that's why the more people that are vaccinated anywhere, but in our school system, the stronger um, that protection is going to be and the more insurance plan we have to keeping those kids in school. Well, it's all an interesting case because students and staff alike have to get mandatory vaccines, other mandatory vaccines, like the polio vaccine is often brought up as a similar case. But with this new Delta variant and growing COVID positive numbers, how do you see this mandate providing protection for the students of Santa Barbara? I mean, the hope is that we we stop this virus as much as we can by everybody doing their part. And the, the, the answer to how long this will be like this, where kids have to wear masks, and it's really up to us. We're only at 60 some percent vaccinated. If we got close to 80, if we got close to 90%, our cases, our, our schools are emblematic about what's happening out there. So we see a rise in cases when there's a rise in the county. And it, it goes back to, you know, just this firm belief I have, if we do right by our children in this county, we do right by everybody. So. That's the answer is just coming together, recognizing this is a time to step up, to do something that you might not feel a thousand percent comfortable with, but you're going to do it because it means that you're keeping your grandma safe or you're keeping your, your colleague safe. 
or you're keeping whomever, somebody you might know not know that they are going through chemo at that moment. And so you being unvaccinated is actually very harmful to their prospects. So that's the answer. And, you know, I, I, we don't, I don't want to mandate everybody. I don't want I mean, we, we would wish we didn't have to have these kind of restrictions, but unfortunately we tried a lot of carrots. We tried a lot of incentives and we're not where we need to be. And now to be a leader and to be an elected leader, that's when government needs to step in and make these rules. Similar again, to the fact that you can't drink and drive legally. You can't smoke and impact people's health secondhand. This is really what this is about. And it's about living with one another and living in society and being part of a community. And so we're, we're having vaccine clinics at um, each of our, all of our campuses almost almost an evening, every evening, just to make the vaccine as accessible and easy for people, for students with parental consent, of course, um, and also their family members. So hopefully we um, keep continuing to progress and, and those numbers go down. I mean, UCSB and three people died yesterday in this county. We were almost at 500 in this county alone. That's 10% of our county. It's just tragic. And the vaccine does by and large prevent death. <laughs> That's what I'm interested in is preventing death. Well, and that's a big part of the school board's primary function, but also making things like the vaccine more accessible to people will certainly help. So thank you so much, Laura Caps, for speaking with me about the recent mandate that was passed last Thursday. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Do you have any final thoughts? Just anyone listening with the masks, especially if you have kids, please just swap in that cloth mask for an N95 or a KN94. That's the Korean version and they're they're cheap, they're plentiful. You can get them at CVS, you can get them on Amazon, but it really um, would, will help us keep the curb the spread. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me. Now I'm here with Alisa Jacobson, female winemaker and founder of Turning Tide Wine to talk about her experience in viticulture. Thanks for being here, Alisa. Ah, thanks for having me. So you started off studying agriculture at UC Davis, but what got you into wine cultivation? I grew up in the fertile Delta regions of California, and all around me, I saw uh, cornfields, tomato fields, um, and I raised uh, lambs and hogs for the for 4-H and for the fair. And through that experience, I realized how important agriculture was to feed the world, you know, to feed the U.S., to feed, you know, local Californians. And, you know, realized that it was a big part of how we live and how we need to continue to live. And I saw that it was also important to farm well, farm sustainably, farm for the future. And I started getting interested in how would that look? How does that look for our future generations? Went to UC Davis, uh, studied agriculture, got you know excited about the about vineyards because what vineyards could do would be to take each season and it turns it into something else. So it's not just like tomatoes going into you know kind of fresh tomatoes. It was pretty exciting to have the connection between the agriculture and the actual wine from each vintage. So it was fun to sort of see that full circle of, you know, how the grapes turn into wine and how you're able to see each vintage and the vintage effect of each year. So tell me a bit about your time leading up to and at Joel Gott Wines and your role of influence in the company. Yeah. So after I graduated from Davis, I did some internships. I loved sparkling wine. I worked in sparkling wine for a while, went over to Australia, came back, worked at Joseph Phelps. And I met Sarah and Joel Gott when I was during my time at Joseph Phelps. 
as Joel's wife was the winemaker at Joseph Phelps at the time. Super wonderful, supportive people. Started me uh, in 2003 as their first employee when they were having their baby. And kind of the rest is history from there. 19 years later, I started as the first employee and was able to build a big team. We made wine all over California, Oregon, and Washington. I got to see all the different regions, how all the different styles, meet a ton of people. And from there, started kind of cultivating my own interest and in what would be my next steps? What are the things that I really feel that I could do to sort of change the way that we make wine, change the way that we farm and started kind of uh, figuring out my goals and next steps from there. So you became pretty invested in this company. I mean, you said 19 years. What made you want to return to your roots, literally and figuratively, with Turning Tide Wine? So I saw that there were many places through those travels in Joel Got Wines that were pretty spectacular and could really farm more sustainably. And Santa Barbara was one of those places that I felt, wow, there's really a lot of potential here. And I don't know that it's been fully reached. And it was pretty exciting for me to see that and to want to dive in to really learn the area and some of the vineyards. And I really think the climate and soils are a wonderful place to make wine. And I just wanted to explore that more. So what is the inspiration for Turning Tide and why is it so important to you to develop a wine company that is sustainable? Turning Tide is really, for one, it's the influence of the ocean climate on all the vineyards that I source from. So Turning Tide really is vineyards that are ocean influenced, but also it's the connection between how the ocean influences the the vineyard, how we affect the farming as far as making sure that we are farming in a sustainable way where we're not getting kind of run off into the water for herbicides and pesticides and kind of that, that big picture connection going back to the ocean again. So if we're farming more sustainably, we're protecting our waterways and the waterways are going back to our ocean. So it's a, it's the connection between, you know, how we farm and how we live. So does the ocean and that foggy, misty, salty air have a big impact on the flavor of the wines that you produce? Yeah, so the fog that comes off of the ocean helps moderate the climate. So really in Santa Barbara, because of that morning ocean air, ocean fog, you're getting a slower ripening effect, meaning that you can preserve more of the natural flavors and acidity in the grapes versus an area that is warmer without the fog where the sun ripens the grapes faster. You're going to get higher sugars. And all of my wines are picked at lower sugar levels, meaning they're going to have lower alcohol as well. So that lower alcohol is actually a nice way to balance the wines and to have, uh, to have some pleasant drinking wines without big alcohol effects. Right now, what season of winemaking are we in and what products can we see coming from Turning Tide in the next few months? Right now we're in harvest season. This year has been a cool year. There's been a lot of, everybody who lives on the Central Coast knows that there's been a lot of fog and cooler days this year. Um, so our grapes aren't um, ripening yet, which is good because there's nice, nice slow ripening progression. So I haven't picked anything in Santa Barbara County yet. Next month should be our big harvest month um, as we come into October. I have a red blend that I'm making from the vineyard that I purchased last year, which is a Grenache and Movedra blend. 
the first release of that was in 2020. I'm excited to make that again for 2021. Well, that's so exciting, especially for a label that started out in such a tumultuous time. I mean, what would you say the biggest challenge of starting this company was? I mean, you had to face the 2020 wildfires and everything agriculturally going on along with this crazy pandemic. So what was the biggest challenge that you faced? Well, that's a good question. I think it's, uh, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, you launched your label during the pandemic, during 2020 wildfires. But I actually think that that was that was all intentional as far as wanting to really show, you know, my wines are all focused on organic or sustainability. And I think that everything that happened in 2020 really showed the rest of us that we need to be thinking about how we live and how we farm differently. And I think, you know, we all need to think about how we want to make sure we're being healthier and know what we're actually eating and, and putting into our bodies. I think all that's really important and has come to kind of fruition in 2020. So thinking more about how we do farm, meaning we farm in areas that are more sustainable um, and not areas that don't have a lot of water and not areas that you, where you really have to put a lot of implements. You shouldn't have to add a lot of implements to the vineyards. You shouldn't have to spray a lot if you're farming in the right areas. So really thinking about where you're farming and also going back to what you are, what you're eating and what you're drinking. So all of my wines, the fact that there's, you know, no harsh herbicides or pesticides, you know, meaning you're not going to get that in your, in your body as well. The lower alcohol, the, all of my wines are are dry. So they're kind of a lower calorie wine style as well. So just thinking about all the things that you're, that you're eating and putting in your body too, I think is important. Yeah. And it's so multifaceted that way. There are so many different steps of influence when it comes to creating a good product. But is there anything else that you'd like to add, not only about your company, but your experience in winemaking? Well, I think it's been pretty exciting over the last the last year to, to see the response and to see how people have enjoyed the wines. I'm looking forward to 2021 being hopefully a fire-free year this year where we don't have all those challenges of trying to harvest during the middle of uh, being evacuated, et cetera, which has been a challenge the last couple of years. I think overall, we're uh, excited to sort of see the cooler vintage effect this year that we have. There should be some more like really good fruit flavors and We'll be able to pick these wines at lower bricks, meaning they're going to have lower alcohol, which is the style that I'm interested in. And I think overall, I'm excited for the 2021 vintage. And if you're interested in learning more about Turning Tide, their product, and Alisa, head to www.turningtidewines.com for more. Thank you so much, Alisa Jacobson, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Once again, I'm Molly McEnany, host of The Indie. Tune in next week for another episode.